Welcome back to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Rachel Weiser, and I'm a fourth-year medical student here at the Medical College of Georgia. I'm excited to be here today with Zach Hodges and April Hartman. Dr. Hodges is a pediatric hospitalist, and Dr. Hartman is the medical director of ambulatory pediatric services at our institution, as well as a practicing general pediatrician here at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Thanks for joining me. I'm glad to be here. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for having us. Today's episode is on adverse childhood experiences that we will refer to as ACEs. We will talk about ACEs, their long-term health consequences, and of course, what do general pediatricians need to know to take care of children suffering from these traumatic experiences. Dr. Hartman, will you get us started by telling us what exactly is an ACE? Sure. The CDC defines adverse childhood experiences as potentially traumatic events that occur in childhood. For example, this could be experiencing violence, abuse, or neglect. Something that might not be obvious is that simply witnessing violence or having a family member attempt suicide could have long-lasting effects. ACEs also include any aspect of the child's environment that can undermine their sense of safety and security. This could include growing up in a household affected by substance misuse, mental health problems, or any instability in the family like parental separation or divorce, a household member being in jail or prison, anything like that. And ACEs are common. In one CDC-sponsored survey, nearly two-thirds of all adults reported experiencing at least one type of ACE. In fact, one in six reported they had experienced four or more. Wow, I did not realize that ACEs were that common. So, I guess the take-home point is that ACEs are experiences that negatively affect the safety and the nurturing environment of developing children. I think we can all agree that it makes complete sense that the adverse experiences during childhood would increase the risk for long-term mental health consequences, like depression and anxiety. Actually, what's interesting is that studies have shown the effects encompass both mental and physical health. Exposed infants have been found to have growth delays, cognitive delays, and sleep problems. Children have been found to have higher rates of asthma, recurrent infections, increased chance for hospitalization, learning difficulties, and behavioral problems. And unfortunately, these effects extend well into adulthood and can lead to increased rates of obesity, cardiovascular disease, and even cancer. ACEs can also contribute to increased risk-taking behaviors like experimenting with drugs, smoking, sexual promiscuity, and alcohol abuse, just to name a few. Some experts say that if we could get rid of ACEs, 60% of adult chronic disease would disappear. Thanks, Dr. Hartman. I think it's very important for us to recognize the long-term health effects that may come with adverse childhood experiences. For our listeners, we should also mention that not all ACEs have to lead to negative consequences. In fact, many children who are resilient or those that grow up in a nurturing environment will likely be spared much of the long-term morbidity associated with ACEs. Great. Now that we have an overview of ACEs, let's move forward to our case to learn more about how this may affect patients we see in clinic. So our patient today is a four-year-old boy named Max who comes to the clinic with his mother who reports that his preschool teacher has mentioned increasing behavior problems in school. Mom thinks that he might have ADHD like his older brother. Mom reports that her older son was diagnosed with ADHD at age 7 and had similar symptoms to what Max is presenting now. Dr. Hodges, how would you approach caring for this 4-year-old boy with behavior problems at school and concern for ADHD? Great question, Rachel. This is a complex case that will require a careful history and exam. 
First off, we know that ADHD does exist in preschool children, but many would not feel comfortable making that diagnosis until other diagnoses are excluded. I would start by asking mom, what exactly are the behaviors that the teachers are seeing in school? Is he inattentive or hyperactive? Does the teacher say he's daydreaming or interrupting others? If the correct diagnosis is ADHD, I would expect the same behavior problems to be present outside of the classroom. I'd want to know if mom has noticed these symptoms at home or maybe at a friend's house. Diagnosing ADHD, especially at this age, can be very difficult. We want to be sure that we use a screening questionnaire like the Vanderbilt Assessment Scale, but also keep in mind that most are validated in children six years and older. We also need to consider the long differential diagnosis. Common mimics of ADHD in preschool children include behavioral problems associated with obstructive sleep apnea, learning difficulties, autism, and other mental health disorders like depression or anxiety. I would also want to screen for examples of aggressive behavior, like hitting or pushing other children that might be concerning for conduct disorder. Of course, in line with our topic today, ADHD is associated with a history of adverse childhood experiences. I would want to carefully ask about changes at home and screen for ACEs. That's exactly right. We want to identify the exact behaviors that may be concerning for ADHD, but also to gather more information about the child's medical and social history that could affect that same behavior. We also need to be sure that when we're talking to families, we're using open-ended questions and that we validate the parents' concerns. Screening for ACEs can be a sensitive topic for many families. It's important to take a non-judgmental approach that focuses on the health of the child and doesn't come across as blaming the parent or caregiver. For example, instead of saying, are there any conflicts at home, you could ask, any recent changes at home or at Max's school? So let's get a little bit more of the clinical picture here. After asking Max's mom these questions, we learn that he has always been an active and talkative kid, but recently he's beginning to have more angry outbursts and aggressive behavior. Max's mom mentions that he is also easily frustrated at home, at which point he tends to have a complete meltdown. Mom confides in you that her and Max's dad are separating. She reports that the past few months had been full of loud arguing and even some outbursts from her husband that did become violent. She also reports that leaving Max's father has required her to get a second job to support her and her children. Dr. Hartman, what are your next steps when a parent confides a trauma of their own to you and mentions items that would screen positive for ACEs for both the parent and the child? At this point in the conversation, you have to acknowledge the trauma and empathize with the parent. That's the most important step. I would say something like, it seems like you're going through a very difficult time. Sometimes it helps to talk to someone. Would you like me to give you the number to the crisis line? The big thing is this, don't try to fix the problem and don't glaze over it. This minimizes the parent's experience. Most importantly, don't comment on how you know what they're going through or what they've been through because no matter how similar two people's traumatic experiences are, the personal experience following the trauma is different and how we interpret those experiences can vary widely. Keep in mind, As pediatric providers, we also have an obligation to screen for possible abuse and to report this if we think the child may be in danger. After empathizing with mom and screening for abuse, I would then try to educate her on ACEs and how we can best protect her child from negative long-term health effects. That's great. Dr. Hartman, do we know how ACEs place children at higher risk of health problems? That's a great question, Rachel. This is likely because of toxic stress. 
So remember, there are all different types of stress, and not all of them are bad. The first type of stress that we should introduce is positive stress. A positive stress response is a physiologic response that is brief and mild to moderate in magnitude. For a stress response to be positive for a child, it needs to be short-term and requires a responsive adult to help the child cope with the stressful situation. Think of a child on their first day of school. This could be a very stressful situation because it's unfamiliar to them. But the child returns home at the end of day and a supportive parent or even a caring teacher at school can make this a very positive experience. In this scenario, the child is protected from prolonged stress because of the network of supportive relationships. With this support, children are able to learn about their new environment at school and even make new friends. This ends up being a very positive experience for the child and promotes an adaptive response to a potentially adverse experience. What's the next type of stress that we should know? The next type is tolerable stress. These are essentially ACEs in the context of a supportive environment. An example would include the sudden death of a close family member or maybe someone's parents getting divorced. What makes this increased level of stress tolerable is the presence of a support system that helps the child cope with the situation and prevent ongoing stress related to this experience. Fortunately, although this type of experience does generate a much larger stress response, the body is able to gradually return back to baseline. To continue our example, this could be a child attending a new school who experiences an episode of bullying. If a child has supportive parents and teachers, then he or she will be able to cope with the situation and a prolonged stressful exposure is prevented. That's right. The final type of stress is toxic stress. Toxic stress is a strong, frequent, or prolonged activation of the body stress response in the absence of a supportive relationship. Toxic stress includes multiple ACEs like ongoing abuse, neglect, and parental substance use. There's evidence that chronic stress can lead to long-term physiologic and psychologic changes. The best information that we have is that this causes an overactivation of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and the sympathetic nervous system. These combine to result in excessive cortisol and catecholamine release. This then stimulates the amygdala, reticular activating system, and other areas of the limbic system and maintains that fight-or-flight response. When the brain is so focused on this stress response and just surviving, other areas of the brain are ignored, and this can lead to problems with memory, learning, executive functioning, in addition to the chronic physical problems like hypertension and impaired glucose tolerance. Unbuffered toxic stress can also increase the risk of substance abuse, anxiety, depression, and cardiovascular disease, just to name a few. And this would be like a child experiencing ongoing bullying without a supportive environment to help them cope with the stress. This might cause the child to have a hyperactive stress response that could come across as being hyperactive or inattentive in school. Let's review these different types of stress. First, positive stress is an adaptive response to a developmentally appropriate experience with guidance from a supportive adult. Think of a young child getting a vaccine or a high school student preparing for an exam. Next, we have tolerable stress. This is when children are able to cope with an adverse experience because of the supportive environment and the event is not sustained or repeated. An example is an unexpected death of a grandparent, but the child is able to be comforted by her parents and cope with the experience. Finally, we have toxic stress. This is a strong, frequent, or prolonged activation of the stress response 
that leads to a maladaptive neuroendocrine response with long-term health consequences. Thanks, Dr. Hodges. That was a great summary. Now that we have a good understanding about what an ACE is and how it contributes to toxic stress and adverse health effects, I thought that we might finish up by talking about how to screen for ACEs in the pediatric clinic. Dr. Hartman, do you have any tips or strategies that you use in clinic that might be helpful for our pediatricians? Sure. Of course, the best case scenario for our patients would be to prevent them from having to endure these adverse experiences in the first place. I mean, as pediatricians, we know prevention is much better than treatment. However, the most critical first step, I believe, is community-based education to increase awareness of ACEs and the effects of toxic stress. We know that some degree of childhood adversity is inevitable, and dealing with a manageable amount of stress is an important part of just normal, healthy development. The role of the pediatrician is to screen for ongoing toxic stress and to support families during this time in their child's development. Is there a best way or a good mechanism to screen for the ACEs and toxic stress in the pediatric clinic? That's a good question, Rachel, and there really is no one right answer. Identifying children at high risk for toxic stress is the pediatrician's first step in providing support for patients and their families. Unfortunately, we all know that this can be really difficult because as pediatricians, we're then required to set aside time to screen for ACEs in a clinic visit that's already packed with a bunch of things we have to do, not to mention that it can be awkward and sometimes even uncomfortable. In one survey of pediatric patients and their family, only 4% received a thorough screen for ACEs and 32% didn't get screened at all. Implementing a standardized questionnaire that can help identify family or community level factors that place a child at risk for toxic stress, this is a good option and it's what most people will do. A lot of pediatricians and other providers use forms like the Bright Futures Pre-Visit Questionnaire, which has some of these screening questions built into the form. There's also more formal screening tools. One example would be the Pediatric ACEs and Related Life Event Screener, which was created by the Bay Area Research Consortium on Toxic Stress and Health. You just want to be sure to screen for the most common causes of toxic stress, which include maternal depression, substance use, domestic or community violence, food scarcity, and poor social connectedness. This type of screening takes time, so we need to advocate for proper reimbursement for these services. Many of the screenings we do now have codes, and they can be billed, but specific ACEs screening is only reimbursed by one or two states. Dr. Hartman, I think everything you said makes sense. It's easy to see how something like maternal depression or community violence could negatively impact the child's development. What do you do after a patient is screened positive for multiple ACEs or toxic stress? This might be the most important part of today's conversation. Pediatricians need to be familiar with the resources that are available in their community for children who might be suffering from ACEs or toxic stress. This may require the work of collaborating with social workers, teachers, school nurses, coaches, counselors, or even civic leaders in the community to create a supportive environment for the child. The most important thing that can be done is to increase the number of supportive relationships around the child so that they can be protected or even buffered against the formation of toxic stress. Involvement in mentoring activities like after-school programs and sports teams may provide additional opportunities to develop these relationships. 
it's very important that children take part in these things so that they can build resilience and learn how to cope with adversity in a healthy and adaptive way. We also need to partner with early intervention services to help support young families. However, for those children that are already experiencing large amounts of toxic stress, we know that pediatric mental health resources can be very limited. As pediatricians, we have to advocate for more effective interventions for children that experience these toxic, stressful situations. This may include forming local traumatic stress networks or increasing the number of accessible and affordable mental health providers. And get to know what resources are available in your community. Mentorship programs like Big Brother Big Sister can be a great opportunity for children to form valuable relationships to help buffer the effects of toxic stress. For our local audience, the Georgia Family Connection Partnership is a statewide organization with local community networks that can help connect local resources to families in need. We can leave a link to their website in our show notes. Thanks, guys. It definitely takes a network of individuals to help our most vulnerable children. You know, we're getting a little short on time, so Dr. Hartman, do you have any other resources for listeners who want to learn more about screening for and combating ACEs? Sure. One of my favorite uh, speakers, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, has set the stage for how to address adverse childhood health with the work her team has done in California. They have created the ACEs Aware website, and it is a wonderful resource to learn more about ACEs, and they actually offer a free two-hour training module. This website also kind of lays out the policy that Dr. Burke Harris has implemented in California in regards to screening for ACEs universally, for which the state of California actually does provide additional reimbursement to pediatricians. Another good example is the MyGCAL app by the Georgia Department of Public Health, which expands the Georgia Crisis Hotline services by offering people the option of texting or chatting about mental health issues if they don't want to actually pick up the phone and call and talk to someone. There are a lot of states and national initiatives also to help provide more resources for families. One that comes to mind is Safe Care, which is an evidence-based parent training program that helps to teach parents better interaction skills, health care skills, and home safety. You can find out more about the Safe Care program by just reaching out to your local Safe Care representative. Advocacy for developing and implementing these initiatives is so important if we're going to protect children from adverse experiences that can impact the trajectory of their lives. Remember, you know, it's not hard to make a difference. All we have to do is commit to each one reaching one. Find a child and offer yourself as that supportive relationship that they so desperately need. Thank you so much, Dr. Hartman. We'll be sure to include links to all of the resources that Dr. Hartman just mentioned in our show notes, as well as in the podcast description for easy access. We have covered so much today. Do each of you want to finish this episode with some take-home points? Sure, I'll get us started. Remember that ACEs are common, and recurrent or prolonged exposure can lead to toxic stress with lifelong negative consequences for our patients' mental and physical health. We need to carefully screen for ACEs in our practice, especially in cases with behavioral and mental health concerns. And consider using a screening tool like the Bright Futures Pre-Visit Questionnaires or the Pediatric ACEs and Related Life Event Screener. Next, get to know the resources that are available in your community so that when these families are identified, you can connect them to the resources they need. And finally, we need to continue to advocate for our patients to have access to mental health resources. 
and also for appropriate compensation for ACE screening in the pediatric primary care practice. Thank you so much again, Dr. Hartman and Dr. Hodges, for joining me today. I think this was a helpful discussion on a very challenging topic that affects patients we see every day. Thank you, Rachel and Dr. Hodges, for inviting me to participate in this podcast. Thanks, Rachel and Dr. Hartman. I had a great time. An additional thanks to Dr. Christopher Drescher and Dr. Lisa Leggio, who provided editing and peer review of today's discussion. And thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.